0: Would you pray with me? God, the only reason that we are here is because of the truths we just sang. Because of Christ. Not because of our merit. God, not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ in us, our very hope of glory. So, Lord, this morning, cause us to love Christ more. Stir our hearts to rejoice in the gospel, the good news about Jesus, for it's our life. In his name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmanuel Church. My name is Rex Blackburn. I'm a pastoral assistant here. It's my privilege to bring you the word of God this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. So we've got two sort of concurrent sermon series going right now at Emmanuel. Alex, uh, our main preaching pastor, is taking us through Matthew. And then when I have opportunities to preach, we're going through the book of Philippians. So this is our second sermon in the book of Philippians. So we're still in Philippians chapter 1. We'll be picking up this morning in verse 12. Um, Every good story has specific ingredients. Stories tend to follow a certain pattern. Good stories have to have good exposition. Okay, now the exposition is the portion of the story in which you learn about the setting, the characters, their circumstances, their context, the situations they're in, and how necessary is this for stories. You have to have good exposition. How confusing would it be to jump into a movie where you've missed the first 30 minutes, right? To pick up a book and start reading, but it's missing the first 50 pages. You're gonna be lost, Be confused. Who are these people? Where are these people? When are these people? All these questions that you don't know the answers to because you've jumped into the story without the exposition. So you need exposition. You also need conflict. A story without conflict is a boring story, if it's a story at all. Imagine Star Wars with no galactic empire. What are we doing? We're just following a kid on a desert farm on the planet of Tatooine. Yes, I am a nerd. Uh, Imagine the Iliad. I can be refined. Imagine the Iliad without the Trojan War. What's the story about? That is the Iliad. The whole story is the war. Kids, imagine watching Aladdin, but there's no Jafar. What are we worried about? Why are we paying attention? There's nothing really going on. Conflict is necessary for a good story. But you can't just have conflict, right? So the conflict has has to happen to the conflict. We need resolution. The problem needs to be solved. The villain needs to be defeated. The battle needs to be won. So imagine watching Rocky IV, which is the only good Rocky. Uh, Imagine watching Rocky IV and the movie cuts off before the end of the fight. You just spent two hours watching Sylvester Stallone stumble through script and watching Ivan Drago in the ring and they're fighting, but what happened? There was no resolution. Who won the fight? The conflict went unsolved, right? Right? Now, I said that the villain has to be defeated for the resolution to take place, but that's not necessarily true. It's possible to have a negative sort of resolution in stories. It's possible to have a story where the bad guy wins. So uh, I think of the book 1984. So I'm going to spoil the ending for you. So it's been out 75 years. I don't feel too bad about that. If you haven't read it yet, it's like tonight was the night you were really going to read it. So 1984. Plug your ears if you don't want to know the ending. The antagonist, the big enemy in 1984 is Big Brother. And our protagonist of the book, the hero, Winston Smith, the last sentence of the book says of Winston Smith, he loved Big Brother. Book ends. That's ominous. You've just spent hundreds of pages pulling for Winston Smith to win this this fight with Big Brother. Maybe Big Brother's going to be toppled. Maybe everything's going to be made right. And then the story ends and your main protagonist hasn't just failed. Right? He didn't just die a martyr's death as some hero who couldn't get the mission done. He defected. Right? He loves the enemy. Story over. Now that's resolution. But it's not a satisfying sort of resolution. Right? And that's a dystopian book. So that's purposeful. That's a perfect sort of book to have that kind of ending. But that sort of ending is not satisfying for us. All things are not made right with that sort of ending. Good has not prevailed. And that sort of desire is deeply ingrained in us, right? When we read a story, we want to see the good guy win. We don't want to lose the hero at the end of the movie, right? So these sorts of story elements... Are indeed woven into our very hearts, into our very existence. Now, our text this morning, I wouldn't say it's a story. However, I believe this text follows a similar sort of story pattern exposition, conflict, resolution. That's actually how I want to divide up the, the text into those three points. There will be an exposition, conflict, and resolution. We're going to read the text now, Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18 keep your eyes open and see if you can spot those sort of separators in the text as we're reading it, right? So Philippians chapter one, let's read the passage. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So this is Paul talking to the people at the church of Philippi. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So, point one, exposition. What's going on with Paul? Right? What's happening right now? And as with many stories, the exposition is going to take up the lion's share of the sermon. Okay? So don't get to the end of point one and hear me move to point two and think, oh my goodness, this sermon's going to be interminable. No, it's, um, the exposition's going to be the lion's share of the sermon. So, what has happened to Paul? Well, imprisonment has happened to Paul, but a lot more has happened. Now, we don't get all of this from Philippians. Our source material for Paul's context here is coming come in from the book of Acts. Now, I'm not going to have you turn there. I'm not even going to read extensively from the book of Acts. Uh, but remember that Philippians is an extremely personal letter. So in Philippians, and this sort of gives us an opportunity to review one or two of the things we talked about last time we looked at the book of Philippians. But in Philippians, we see this depth of friendship and care and kinship between Paul and the church at Philippi that really is unique among the Pauline epistles. They are partners in the gospel. Remember that language? They're fellow partakers of grace with Paul. The congregation is dear to Paul, and the feeling is mutual. Paul is very dear to this congregation. And one of the main purposes of this letter is for Paul to let them know how he's doing. They want an update on Paul. They know Paul's been in prison, but what's happened to him? Uh, is, he, is he alive still? Has he stood trial? Is, is someone taking care of him? I mean, prisoners weren't really treated well in the Roman Empire. It's not like they were fed and cared for and put up in a posh place. No, it was on that person's loved ones to make sure that they got brought food and sustenance. And so the Philippians were supporting Paul even from a distance. So well, in this letter, they finally get news about Paul. They finally get an update on how Paul is doing. So imagine... They're reading the letter. They've probably been very eager to hear from Paul. And I'm sure that the first verses of this book are sweet to read, how Paul's talking about his relationship with them, his love for them. But then you have to understand, they're probably very excited to hear him say something like, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, okay, now we're going to get some information about how Paul's doing. Because this congregation is very, very concerned about Paul and his welfare. In that first line, I want you to know, brothers, that's sort of an attention-getter in this kind of letter. I want you to know, brothers, that's a little highlight saying, pay attention. What I'm about to say is important. So let's pay adequate attention to what Paul has to say. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So, what has happened to Paul? Well, one biblical scholar summarized it this way. What happened to Paul began in Acts 21, when the Apostle set foot in Jerusalem. He was forewarned by the Holy Spirit that bonds and imprisonment awaited him. An entirely false accusation was leveled at him by his own people. He was nearly lynched by a religious mob and ended up in Roman prison, having escaped a flogging only by pleading his citizenship in Rome. His whole case was beset by a mockery of justice, for though all the right was on his side, he could not secure a hearing. He was made the subject of unjust and unprovoked insult, shame, malicious misrepresentation, and deadly plots. There's references for each of these. He was kept imprisoned, owing to officials craving for popularity or for money, or because an over-punctilious facade of legalism. Even when the sufferings were over, there came the prolonged trial of the storm at sea, where his life hung by a thread, both because of the elements and because of the petty officiousness of those around him. Eventually, when he reached Rome, it was far from the ambassadorial entry that he had doubtless looked for. He came in the company of the condemned, bound by chains, destined to drag out at least two years under arrest, awaiting the uncertain decision of a fickle earthly king Nevertheless, still imprisoned, still chained, still unheard, still uncertain, Paul writes to the Philippians, what happened to me has served to advance the gospel. So Paul is what has happened to Paul is significant. And there's a lot he could tell them here about what has happened to him. And we'll see what he does. Now, this provides an opportunity to draw a quick distinction before we go further. When we think about suffering, we need to understand that not all suffering is created equal. Now, if you're in the equip class on walking with God through pain and suffering, this is a point you've already heard delineated a little bit. But if you're not, let me me remind us all that there is a difference between suffering that's general to humanity and distinctly Christian suffering. Right, so Christians get sick. Well, people who hate God get sick. Right, financial distress, calamity, loss, disease. These sorts of things fall upon all of us by virtue of our human nature. There's nothing distinctly Christian about that sort of suffering. Now, you can suffer through that in a distinctly Christian way, absolutely. But what do I mean by distinctly Christian suffering? Well, the sort of suffering that Paul's undergoing here, there is suffering that is distinctly for the sake of Christ. An unbeliever will never experience this sort of suffering. No unbeliever's ever going to be mocked because of their love for Jesus. Right? No unbeliever's ever going to be flogged or thrown in prison because they're preaching the gospel. This is what we call persecution. Right? This is distinctly Christian suffering. And Paul is very much undergoing that type of suffering. In fact, it's very, very much that type, and that comes through in Paul's language. In verse 13, Paul says, my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, Paul originally writes this in Greek, and there's a Greek phrase that is typically used for this sort of sentence that means for Christ or for the sake of Christ. And Paul doesn't use it here. Paul uses another phrase that's much more common in his letters. It doesn't really come through in this translation, but Paul says, in Christ. My suffering is in Christ is what Paul says. Now, if you're familiar with Paul, in Christ is a really familiar phrase for you. Paul uses, it's literate, it's peppered throughout Paul's letters. In Christ this, in Christ that. So I won't go into this doctrine, but this is Paul's shorthand for the deep and wonderful idea of the Christian's union with Christ. Christians are in Christ. If you've believed in Christ, if you've come to Christ for salvation, you are united to him. And so without diving into that doctrine, suffice it to say that perhaps by using this phrase, which again is uncommon for Paul to use in this sort of sentence, but is very common for him elsewhere, perhaps Paul's calling our attention to something. That he's not just suffering. His suffering is not just Christian suffering. His suffering is fellowship in the sufferings of Christ himself. Paul is, in these chains, sharing the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Paul is mindful, as he is suffering, of the fact that his Lord also suffered. And no servant is greater than his master. So, Christian, as you suffer, be mindful of the same thing. Christ is your fellow sufferer. Or should I say, Christ was your fellow sufferer. He knows your frame Because he shares your frame. And yet, though he was made like us, we shall be made like him. If we suffer now with the man of sorrows, we will one day be glorified with the lamb. These things are perhaps a comfort to Paul in prison. Because he's saying that as he's suffering, his imprisonment is in Christ. It is in Christ that he is imprisoned. An interesting phrase there. Paul is sitting imprisoned with every cause to bemoan and complain his state, but instead he is acutely aware that he's only sitting in prison because he preached Christ's gospel. And his imprisonment is still serving that purpose because that's what he says. Through it, the gospel continues to advance. Brothers, what has happened to me has really served, this imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. So the Philippians are concerned about Paul. Paul has indeed legitimately suffered. Yet instead of complaining about his circumstances, Paul turns his attention and theirs and ours to the gospel. I assume that part of the reason that he does this is because he's concerned that the Philippians will worry unnecessarily for his sake. You'll see this that although Paul is very personal in this letter, uh, whenever he brings up himself, he's quick to deflect their attention back to Christ, back to the mission back to the gospel, back to their glorious future in Christ. So it's like Paul wants them to know how he's doing, but he doesn't want them to just linger in despair. He wants to quickly comfort them with truth about Christ and the gospel. So that, that undercurrent of warmth and affection sort of flows underneath all the places of this book, this one included. And surely the Philippians aren't surprised at this from Paul. I mean, they're very familiar with what happened at the jail in Philippi right? The Philippian jailer is probably a part of this congregation. So they know that Paul was into the wee hours of the morning, sitting there in chains, worshiping and praising God. They have to be thinking about that as they're reading about his imprisonment now, what his imprisonment was like when he was among them and brought the gospel to them at the first. So Paul is telling them about his captivity as if it's good news, Because through his imprisonment, he sees that the gospel is being advanced. Now, let me pause here for a brief word of application. Uh, Commenting on this text, Matthew Henry, a Puritan commentator, calls this a strange chemistry of providence to extract so great a good as the enlargement of the gospel out of so great an evil as the unjust confinement of God's apostle. Right? Let me say that again. It's a strange chemistry of providence. It's strange how God mixes his sovereign will that uh, such a good thing as the gospel being advanced would come from such an evil thing like the unjust confinement of perhaps God's most effective apostle. Now, this isn't a sermon about suffering, necessarily. This is a sermon about the gospel, But this brings up an important principle about suffering. And this is a principle that I hope everyone in this room is acquainted with. But if you're not, let me introduce it to you. God ordains and has good purposes for the sufferings of his people. Okay, so God ordains and has good purposes for the suffering of his people. Though Paul is talking here about Christian suffering, his imprisonment is for preaching the gospel, this principle applies to any suffering of the Christian. So Paul is able to look around him in his bleak prospects and think the gospel is being advanced. And I think this comes through in that use of the one word that he uses there, really. So you see that in the text? Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, there are multiple ways in which we can use that word really. Like, it can mean very. She's really tired. It's really hot. It's obviously not what we mean here. We mean really as in truly, actually. What has happened to me has actually, has truly served to advance the gospel. The real outcome of my imprisonment is the advance of the gospel. Now, is his imprisonment real? Are his sufferings real? Well, of course. But apparently, there's a realer thing, a more real thing that is happening in his imprisonment. God has some design in Paul's imprisonment. In this case, the advance of the gospel. So what a comfort for us who suffer, right? That yes, our sufferings are very real, but apparently there's something more real, more actual happening behind the curtain. Apparently there are real divine intentions behind everything that befalls us. And what a support that with Paul, we can look through the veil of our suffering And see the hand of providence at work. And we've been promised that that hand only ever works for our good if we're children of God. So Christian who suffers, be comforted and say with Paul, all these things have happened really to glorify God, to advance the gospel, to encourage my brothers, to give me endurance. Whatever God's purposes are in your suffering, and there are 10,000 of them, we affirm that he does have purposes in them. So Paul says, yes, all these things have happened, but what's really happened here is the advance of the gospel. So now let's ask that. How is the gospel being advanced while Paul's in prison? Well, he tells us. He points to two ways. Let's keep reading. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So there's the first one, concerning outsiders. The imperial guard is evangelized. So in Paul's case, he's imprisoned for the sake of Christ. He's given over to the praetorian guard. This is sort of the the imperial guard, imperial, empire, emperor. This is the the guard that's been assigned for the protection of the emperor. This is one of the important reasons that many think Paul was imprisoned in Rome during the writing of this epistle. It's widely believed that Paul was chained to a Roman guard during his imprisonment. So the way he's imprisoned, many believe it was actually like a sort of house arrest. So he's not sitting there like behind bars playing a harmonica. He's in a home where he's kept and he's chained to a Roman guard. So if you know Paul, you know Paul sees there an opportunity. So what's Paul doing with this Roman guard that's now stuck with him? He's telling him about Christ. He's explaining the circumstances of his arrest, the preaching of the gospel. And then we assume that that guard doesn't stay with him 24-7. There's shifts, right? So one guard leaves, another guard comes. What's Paul doing? Well, we can imagine a new conversation. That guard leaves, another one comes, that guard leaves, another one comes. It's assumed that there were several thousand members of the Praetorian Guard And Paul says that the whole praetorian guard has heard about Christ. Now, even if he's exaggerating there a little bit, uh, we can assume that Paul is getting a lot of face time with Roman guards. And from his words, he's using that face time for, for for, for the purposes of the gospel. And it's not just the Roman guards. It's all the rest, whatever that means. So he says, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So we don't know exactly who he's talking about here, and I'm not going to speculate on it, but we know that it's a lot of people. And it's unsurprising that Paul is speaking of Christ to anyone around him with every opportunity. There's another way, however, a second way, that Paul says the gospel is advancing. Yes, to outsiders, to pagans, that are being evangelized and hearing the word of Christ, but also insiders are being emboldened by Paul's imprisonment. So let's keep reading. Verse 13. What's really happened has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard Into to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And, verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So not only does Paul see the gospel going out to the lost because of his imprisonment, he sees the gospel going out from his fellow saints who have been emboldened by his imprisonment. Now, thinking about this, looking at examples of godly suffering, being emboldened by it to more faithful Christian witness. Brothers, sisters, I just want to point you to one place where there is a manifold multitude of examples of faithful sufferers. And that's our brothers and sisters that have gone before us. Uh, we talked in our confession about the noble army of the martyrs. That's a, that's a sea of encouragement if you want to know how to suffer well. Uh, we're actually going to sing a song after this sermon called For All the Saints. Uh, the, the, the language for that song, it, was kinda, it took me several times when we started singing that song to really understand what the song was about. The song's about the history of the church. It, for all the saints who from their labors rest, These are saints that have rested from their labors. Who thee by faith before the world confess. So they confess Christ before the world by faith. Thou wast their rock. You were their fortress. You were their might. You were their captain in their well-fought fight. In their darkness drear, you were their one true light. So may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Hallelujah. All right, so that's what we're going to sing about at the close of this, this sermon. We're, we're going to sing about the faithfulness of the saints who have gone before us, and, and their faithfulness should spur us on to faithfulness, right? One example of this um, that I, I first encountered in college in a class that I took on the Reformation, uh, there's one martyr named Michael Sattler, Now, we would have some theological disagreements with Michael Sattler, uh, but he was a Baptist in a time when being a Baptist was a very deadly thing. And he ran afoul of the Catholic Church, among other views. Uh, Part of it was his rejecting of the Catholic Church's view on baptism. Uh, This is from a biography on Sattler's life. This is the sentence that's handed out to him by the tribunal that he stood before. Michael Sattler shall be committed to the executioner, who shall take him to the town square and first there cut out his tongue to silence his heresy. Then forge him fast to a wagon to be dragged to the point of execution. And there with glowing iron tongs twice will be torn pieces from his body and five times more this will be done on the way to the site. And then the executioner shall burn Sattler's body to powder as an arch heretic. His wife will be drowned and the other men with him will be beheaded. Well, this was all done. And there were other Anabaptists in the crowd that were watching this happen to their brother. And he's, he's taking this faithfully. Even as his tongue is removed, he still continues to try to pray for his accusers. Sattler's taken to the point of execution. All these horrific things are done to him. And to be burned, he's tied to a ladder. And they set a big wagon full of straw on fire and then pushed the ladder into the wagon. Well, as they do so, um, the ropes are burned from around his arms, and up from the wagon, multiple witnesses testified that they see a raised hand with two fingers upward pointing towards heaven, which was the agreed-upon sign among the brothers that the martyr's death was bearable. So this is what Sattler does. In immense pain, with such courage, such boldness, is testifying to his brothers, still looking to encourage his brothers that, hey, if they come for you, no, know it's worth it for the sake of Christ. And the final conversations between him and his wife are full of the same sort of material. So what effect do you think that has on the saints that are there watching this happen? They're emboldened. I mean, we see this story over and over again from the early church that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church, Right? As the church was slain, they grew. There were unbelievers there. Even some of those who sentenced Sattler that would later be converted because of his faithful testimony. Why? Because he suffered well. He died well for the sake of Christ. He faced the very worst that this existence has to offer with charity towards those who did it to him and boldness in the face of pain. The theologian John Calvin says this, the tortures of the saints are indeed a dreadful spectacle. And they might tend to dishearten us if we only saw the cruelty and rage of the persecutors. But when we see at the same time the hand of our Lord at work, making his people unconquerable, through the infirmity of the cross and causing them to triumph, relying upon this, we ought to venture farther than we had been accustomed, having now a pledge of our own victory in the persons of our brethren. We have a pledge, a guarantee of our own victory by the sufferings of our brothers in the past and our sisters in the past. One more word here. You don't have to be a martyr for your faithfulness to be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters. Right, you don't have to be Michael Sattler to suffer well. All of us will face hardship. Some more than others. But your response to trials is not only a surprising model for unbelievers to see, your co-worker who says, "How are you so happy after you just went through this?" But they also serve as an encouragement and a comfort for your brothers and sisters around you. Your hardship, your trial, could serve to be a call to action to your weary brother or sister, to jump back up into the fray. Think about your own experience. What are the things that have put the most steel in your spine as a Christian? Have built in you the most endurance as a Christian? It's your suffering or the suffering of those brothers and sisters you hold so dear and watching them suffer well. So, suffering Christian among us, know that your brothers and sisters are watching you not with judgment, not with mere pity, but with hope. Praying for you that your faith would not fail. Because our faith is strengthened when your faith proves strong. So let me say to you, brother, sister, who's suffering, suffer well for our sake. Suffer well for Christ's sake. Let's transition now from exposition to conflict. So we see how Paul is doing. We see Paul's context. We see how Paul is suffering. Now let's move to some conflict that is introduced into this passage. Look at verse 15. Some, actually, let me go back a couple verses. What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The imperial guard knows about Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. Those who are preaching from goodwill do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former envy-rivalry bunch, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What a strange, weird sort of conflict here, right? Because just when we would think that all of Paul's enemies are characterized by his Roman captors, we now learn that he has enemies within the church who seek his humiliation. Now, they are within the church. If you read this passage, no, these are brothers. Uh, That's the first point to make here. These are not false teachers, It's clear from the text that these are brothers. Paul says, most of the brothers are more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Some what? Some brothers. Most brothers are emboldened in speaking the word without fear. Some, however, are speaking the word out of envy and rivalry. Paul also says that these these people are preaching Christ. That's not the sort of language Paul uses about false teachers. He says they are proclaiming Christ. One commentator said that these enemies are not anti-Christ, though they are anti-Paul. So these are brothers that we're thinking about that see that Paul is in prison and they begin to preach the gospel more fervently. But they do so out of selfish ambition, envy, some sort of feeling of rivalry towards Paul and his ministry. They obviously had some sort of axe to grind for Paul, Because verse 17 says, they don't proclaim Christ sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So, in some way, they believe that their preaching of the gospel is going to usurp and supplant Paul and his ministry. Now, this might sound strange, right? Preaching Christ out of envy, sharing the gospel out of rivalry, selfish ambition being your motive, for evangelism, that sort of thing, uh, maybe hard to even imagine that happening. Well, if it is hard to imagine it happening, let me just encourage you to take a long look inward. Selfishness, envy, rivalry, insincerity, these are vices that will silently, patiently wait at the door of your Christian health. Isn't your heart at times prone to covet the praise of men for your good works for Christ? Don't you sometimes notice insincerity tainting your worship of God? Why else would Christ warn us so gravely about doing deeds of righteousness to be seen by men unless things like rivalry, vanity, and selfish ambition were real threats to the gospel simplicity that should characterize Christian worship. Now, one quick caution. We shouldn't read this and say, okay, Paul says, um, some people preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. Paul says it doesn't really matter, the gospel's going forth, it's great. We shouldn't see this as some sort of blanket stamp of approval on any sorts of bad motives that infect people's ministries, right? Right? It's not Paul's desire that we should just abandon discernment in our consideration of other people. For instance, it seems clear to me that these people that Paul is speaking of, though they are proclaiming Christ, and Paul rejoices that the gospel is going forth, these people that are characterized by envy, rivalry, ambition, insincerity, Paul's not putting these guys forward to be elders in a local church anytime soon, right? So just because Paul affirms the fact that the gospel is going forth and rejoices in that, doesn't mean that he's approving any sort of insincerity or avarice that's hidden deep in the hearts of gospel ministers. That's one of the reasons that Paul says elders shouldn't be new converts, so they they won't be puffed up with conceit, right? So we should seek to put to death this sort of rivalry among fellow partakers of grace. I mentioned this once already in this series in the previous sermon, how much I appreciate the practice here at Emmanuel of praying for other churches in our area. I, again, second time I brought that up in two sermons, but it's just such a, so many people comment on this when they first come to Emmanuel. It's such a novel thing, but it makes so much sense. Why isn't this happening everywhere? Right? Aren't we on the same team? So why do we do this? It's because we want these other like-minded gospel ministries to succeed. Because if they succeed, the gospel succeeds. If their ministries enlarge, the gospel of Christ is enlarged in our community. Praise God. Let's pray that that would happen. Right now, there are thousands of other believers, like us, that are worshiping God in the triad. Thousands. We should feel kinship with them. We should feel emboldened by the fact that they are right up the road, worshiping Christ with us. It's that same sort of gospel partnership that we saw in the first section of Philippians. And that gospel partnership is the antidote to this sort of rivalry, this sort of envy. We want God, we want Christ to meet with these fellow congregations. We want Christ to encourage and bless the worship of these fellow congregations. So the relationship between Paul and these rivals is the exact opposite of that. Right? And it's the exact opposite of his relationship with the Philippians. They're fellow partakers of grace. In his imprisonment, he says that they are sharing in God's grace with him in his imprisonment. Even though they're hundreds of miles away, they're partners with him in the gospel. These other folks, however, are rejoicing at Paul's imprisonment, thinking to afflict him in any way that they can. Now, Let me say one last thing here on the issue of this conflict and then we'll move to resolution. There are many outside the church and even quite a few inside the church who carry around deep grudges of Christian people who have hurt or mistreated them in the past. Someone misled you. A Christian deceived you. A fellow Christian betrayed you. A fellow follower of Christ did not live up to even the most basic expectations of love and charity in your relationship with them. And you've had a hard time overlooking it, perhaps. Brother, sister, let me tell you look to Paul. These are brothers that he knows are rejoicing in the fact that he's undergone all of these sorrows. What does he do? Does he call down God's wrath on them? Does he tell the Philippians to look out for these sorts of dogs? No, they're brothers. He knows they're brothers. So Christ is su- or Paul has suffered for the sake of Christ. He's been thrown in prison. And now those who claim to be his brothers seek to afflict him in his imprisonment by usurping his ministry with their own. And Paul responds, how? Well, in this letter, this letter in which the Philippian congregation is very eager to hear about how he's doing, he brings up his situation only to immediately def- to deflect their attention to redirect their attention to the gospel to Jesus he brings this up these brothers that don't have that have ill will towards him and to his ministry and then he says but hey i rejoice that the gospel is going forward and he does so sincerely take note of this the gospel of christ will march victoriously forward even though your name is maligned, even though you're mistreated, Christ will continue to build his church. Please know that Christ, Paul, and 10,000 times 10,000 other Christians have suffered similar slander, similar mistreatment, similar neglect. No servant is above his master. So may we who are mistreated humble ourselves Die to ourselves and focus on the gospel. Focus on Christ. It may have been someone else's ill will that wounds us, but it is perhaps our pride that refuses comfort, that refuses balm. So finally, resolution. We've got our conflict now. Envy, strife, rivalry, selfish ambition. How is this resolved? Well, let's read. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? So what? Well, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So here's the movement sort of of how this passage has worked. We start off in the Gospels going forward. Come what may, How's this happening? Well, outsiders are being won to Christ by Paul in prison. Insiders are being emboldened to share the gospel more effectively, more boldly. However, however, conflict, there are those who seek to increase themselves by Paul's imprisonment. So those who are envious and selfish, we've got conflict. Yet, finally, resolution, the gospel still goes forward, and in this, Paul rejoices. So, whether or not it's sincere, whatever the aims of the men who are proclaiming the gospel, Christ is being proclaimed. Whether Paul's opposition comes from the world or whether his opposition, imagine it, comes from within the church, the gospel goes forward. Paul rejoices, Christ wins. My guess is that Paul is also sort of cueing to the Philippians how they should think about these sorts of situations. Right? He's modeling for them, you know, how obviously the Philippians are going to be protective over Paul and anyone who would say a cross word about his ministry. I'm sure they would want to rush to his defense, but Paul brings this up and immediately says, Hey, I rejoice. Don't worry about me. The gospel's going forward. Everything's fine, he said while in chains. So, how is it that the gospel gives joy to Paul in spite of all his suffering? How is it that Paul can look at his circumstances, enemies within, enemies without, afflictions all around him, and say, I rejoice because the gospel's going forward and mean it? This isn't trite platitude coming from Paul. When Paul says he rejoices, I think he means it. I believe him. So, how so? Well, Let's consider the gospel. Paul has good news. Paul has good tidings of great joy. The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And this is the good news. We are sinners. Both by nature and by choice, we have joined the mutiny against the king of the universe. Glad rebels against God himself. And yet, instead of pouring out his wrath on us, God's own son is crucified for our sins. He took our place as a substitute, took God's punishment for our sin, defeated death by rising from the grave, such that a lonely man named Paul can sit there in chains and rejoice. A man with no prospects, no hope, no certainty about his future, can joyfully affirm that the power of the gospel will prevail. Whether they release him or kill him, it's deliverance for Paul. That's powerful. That's freedom from the fear of death. And the Bible describes the fear of death as subjecting men and women everywhere to lifelong bondage. We live under bondage to the fear of death until we get gospel hope that come what may, we are Christ's. So, put him in bonds if you want to, Rome. But by doing so, you're just emboldening his brothers and sisters to give more faithful witness to the very gospel you tried to destroy. It's been said that the same wind that seeks to blow out a fire may also cause its spread. So come what may, Christ will continue to build his church. All conflicts will be eternally overcome. There is no negative resolution waiting for us at the end of our journey. There is only eternal, beautiful, glorious resolution that we get to enjoy forever. Christ and his people will live happily ever after and only because of the gospel and its constant forward advance, both in the world and in our own lives. So brothers, sisters, until that resolution, the gospel of Christ will continue to go forward. And this Christ gladly and sincerely offers himself to any who would have him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel. We are frail, weak, fickle, double-minded sinners. The only thing we bring to the bargaining table of the gospel is our sin and hope. God, hope that you will not punish us for our sin because Christ already suffered your wrath. So God, this morning, as we continue to worship you in song, may we do so as redeemed sinners. God, again, stir up our hearts to love you and to love your gospel. Point our hearts towards your steadfastness and Christ's love for us. Give us gospel boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.